HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. It's Monday afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Uh, my co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger, and we have uh, Jack Inslee and Carlos Salguero helping us out on the engineering and, uh, and tagging side of the show, um, so thanks to you guys. Um, today we are really happy and honored to have Michelle Buster, uh, one of the founders of Forever Cheese, in the studio with us to talk about her business. Hi, Michelle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. It's uh, it's been fascinating, as I was saying, kind of you know just taking a look at uh, at your website, learning more about your business. I've eaten a lot of your cheese. I've eaten a lot of your Marcona almonds in the course of my life, but uh, it's going to be fun to sort of dig a little deeper and uh, and learn more about what got you started in the business. Um, so I guess that's actually, you know, it's a good place to start. Um, we all kind of come to cheese, it seems like through various and strange backgrounds. Um, how did you get into the cheese business? Through love. <laughs> that's <laughs> love, always a good way. <laughs> love and accident. Uh, I was working in sports in Rome, Italy, and I met, randomly I met uh, my co-founder, Pierluigi Sini, and uh, we eventually just kept dating and he moved to New York to learn English well he didn't move here he came to learn English and pick up some pointers and move go back to Italy but in the meantime a year goes by and we're still together and I'm working in various sporting events in Italy and in Spain and finally I said okay I'm coming to be with you and when I came there he was fed up with uh, how his cheeses of his family were being uh, distributed so together we decided well with his great tutelage, because I knew nothing about cheese, we decided we would do it ourselves. And so um, you were saying he comes from a family of cheesemakers, and what kind of cheese um, do they make? His uncle and his father have a company, well, they all, it was a family company, and his uncle makes the cheese. Pecorino Romano, the Fulvi, it's pretty much the final uh, Pecorino Romano produced in Rome today, wow. as we speak. There were about three of us 
um, when we first, about 18 years ago, when we took this up, and little by little, they just have gone out of business or stopped producing or whatever it is. And they make fresh, young pecorinos or, table, or sheep smoked cheeses also, which is typical of uh, the countryside of Rome. That's really fascinating. So you decided to start this business, um, and you say you know nothing about cheese. Um, and importing and exporting is a very complicated business. Um, so how did you get started? Was it just um, the Fulvi cheeses at first that you guys were working on together? Yeah. We started with one cheese, the Fulvi, Pecorino Romano, and then the three other table cheeses. It was like Cache de Roma and Rustico. So we had this family of four cheeses for like five or six years. And it was just, uh, it was a huge learning curve. Wow. Um, and and what, it, year, what year was that? Uh, 1993. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so from four cheeses now, I mean, the, the company has expanded quite a bit. Um, you guys uh, represent the Mediterranean. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the cheeses that you focus on now? Well, we still, that's a huge base of what we did. Um, I mean, the company when we started was Sini Fulvi, and that came from Pierluigi's family's name and everything there. And then over time, as we, I had like a pact with him that if we were successful selling his family cheeses, that I would be able to go to Spain and find really good Manchego, because I couldn't find that here. And what happened is, is that evolved and it changed very much. It um, turned into, because I didn't find Manchego to start with. It took me two years to find what I considered to be the Manchego that I wanted our name to be with. Mm. And I found the Queso Alvino, which then became Drunken Goat. And then from there, it just kind of expanded into all these treasures from Spain. And we continued to grow from Italy. And we decided that we'd always keep it like the focus to the Mediterranean, because that was where our roots are and our love was. Mm. And we wanted to only do things that we loved. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, why do it if you don't love it? That's like, you know, <laughs> the crux, the crux of the business. I think I can definitely uh, say that that's, you know, that's my feeling about cheese, too. Um, so, but then Portugal and Croatia, you're now working, you're working with cheesemakers in those countries as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feel like we don't see as many of those cheeses um, as commonly here in the States. Well, once we started to do a lot more from Spain, to me it was natural progression of it's part of the Iberian Peninsula. And we just looked around to see what was there. And there was like nothing from Portugal. And I've traveled extensively. And in my travels, I remembered. And actually in Spain, Torta La Serena is my favorite cheese oh my of all the cheeses it's we the have pretty much and so in Portugal has all those amantegado cheeses that are just phenomenal so we decided we would um, focus on Portugal because what I had learned was that in the Portuguese communities uh, they had Portuguese cheeses but it was of a more of a price oriented level they weren't going to the real DOP the really great quality cheeses so we figured that that could be good for us that said they're really delicate they are very pricey and we need to bring them by air to treat them well. So you don't see them in that many places because you have to have somebody willing to spend the money for it. You need to explain them much more. And even though we've been doing it over 10 years, it hasn't gotten easier. Mm. Um, and, well, nothing's gotten easier. And most of them are also raw milk. Mm. So you have to have... Most of them are raw milk. So you have to have the... Um, 60 days mm. of the aging so this it's it can get really complicated into all the different things that are there and today's world of importing with fda and the regulations and what you listen to 
it's much more difficult to import than it ever has been. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about that for sure. The FDA regulations, um, actually, uh, for all of our listeners out there, Michelle was uh, on um, another Heritage Radio Network show, Straight No Chaser, back in March with Katie Kiefer, along with Steve Jenkins. And that was a really fascinating interview and hilarious interview <laughs> from time to time. Steve is absolutely just one of the funniest guys ever. We were listening to it on the subway on the way over here and like cracking up. Yeah. Steve was like berating the government. Um, but before we talk about the FDA and kind of that side of it, um, can we talk a little bit more about your relationship with your producers? Um, obviously, you know, you said your first relationship um, was with, you know, a man that you loved and, and, you're, and it was a family business. Um, but then uh, I thought something that you said was very interesting um, was that there's nobody in the middle between you, you and your producers. And you actually speak all the languages, um, you know, of the... Except for Croatian. <laughs> and I didn't talk about that. There I learned with in Croatia, just to answer there. Um, I went on vacation in Croatia, and I pretty much fell in love with the Adriatic and all of Croatia. And somebody in the business told me to try the cheese, which I then became wildly in love with because it's sheep, and mm. everything that seems to be sheep is what I love. Mm-hmm. And it took me almost five years to bring it, but one of the things that I learned was that they spoke Italian. So that's how I finally got through. Ah, good. So, because, yeah, we're, um, we take great pride in the fact that there's no middlemen. And it's, it's ourselves with the producer, whether it's in Italy or it's in Spain or it's in Portugal, that we can work with them, understand what it is that they want out of the cheese, how it should be. And then we have the expertise of having come from cheesemakers in Rome to help them package it well or when uh, at what aging point to leave and to come. And that helps me also get the complete story. And since we handle such unusual cheeses that usually need to have a lot of background and education and sampling and everything like that, then we can share those stories with our customers who then can share them down to the consumer. Yeah, that's really, really great. That's really great. And how many producers would you say um, you're working with? Oh, let's see. I finally counted. We have 166 cheeses, and that could probably be broken down into, I don't know, um, over 50. Wow. That's incredible um, logistic gymnastics <laughs> for you to arrange all, because many of them are quite small. Isn't that right? I ha- There's a range, and we kind of divide it a little bit. Pierluigi handles most of Italy. Um, even if I might do the sourcing on a lot of them to start with, and I have maybe a handful I talk with like 10 all the time, but then I handle all of Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. So, um, well, today's world between some phone, some email, some every there, and the size, I from everywhere from two wheels a day to maybe 100 wheels a day. So there really is all sizes. A big range. Okay, cool. Um, Now, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what are some of your most iconic products? Um, Because I feel that, you know, you see um, Mitika, your your label, around a lot. um, And it it does go beyond cheese. So can you tell us a little bit about what are some some of your most sort of well-known products? Yeah, I guess Mitika, we've been able to introduce more with the non-cheese items. So Marcona almonds, for sure. Because that was a product that when I studied in Spain, I ate the almonds there and I loved them. I came back to the States. I didn't like almonds. I went back to Spain. I loved the almonds and I didn't get it. I didn't understand. And I kept saying, what's different about these almonds? And nobody knew. But I went on a trip with um, 
like what do they call it a reverse mission where they you, they take you to all different places and they took me to an almond grower mm. so I learned that there were different types of almonds in the world and that's how I learned about the Marcona and where we weren't the first to bring them here we were the first to bring them in a way that kind of explained them and they didn't get lost on a shelf somewhere we brought them in bulk you packed them out um, our partners helped you know Whole Foods was big and Murray's and all the other uh, idea there were so many people who were very supportive in Put, putting them out and sampling them so that they did they have become really well known all over the place yeah no once you have a handful you're just completely hooked I mean I remember fondly packing those out when I worked at Murray's and you know it's like you know one one handful for the you know the package one handful for me one handful for the package which probably you know eating the profits I still do that to this day but well it was and it was the oil for me because that was the key because the oil kept the salt on mm. and otherwise I thought it changed them so getting like your formulas down and figuring that out was huge because it was our first those were our first forays out of just cheese wow so that was really big I think that the fig fig cake mm-hmm. was really big because it just wasn't out and around and people were doing some dried fruits but we started bringing that when even my producer was at the crux where he was a little bit having a little bit of difficulty selling it in Spain because people were using it just for the holidays. And we decided that we were going to show it as a cheese accompaniment all year round, not just as a holiday item. And he did the same. And it became really popular. And then I started seeing like the competition grow and grow and grow. So it was pretty interesting to see that become more as an everyday item. I'd say that, so... Drunken goat. Drunken goat, you said, yes, which is certainly, I feel like, a gateway goat cheese for a great many people. (laughs) Mine included. Yeah. (laughs) Um, First goat cheese that I would really like, and it allowed me, it's kind of like, you know, with wine, we start with the white Zinfandel, and then you can graduate to the white, and then, well, that allowed me to graduate to more uh, more flavorful goat cheeses, and then finally to to going, like, even back to, I was always scared of that white stuff. And then I was able to finally eat, you know, softer goat cheeses that, that were like that. <laughs> Just, yeah, baby steps, you know. I'd say Sotocenere also. Oh, yeah. Sotocenere al Tartufo was a really huge popular item for us that then, um, because we have a trademark name, people tried to get a copy of it. And so then it became a whole, like, what happens is you make things popular, all of a sudden it becomes a different business. Mm. Like more political, where you have to protect it, and then you have all these other things that you never realized that you had to become lawyer, protector, defender, make sure you have it. So, like the really good, exciting part always has that equalizer to it as well. That's really interesting. I didn't really think about that, but of course, I mean, Soto Cenere, for people who haven't tried it, is amazing. It's a cow's milk cheese called Soto Cenere because it's ashed on the outside, and uh, there's this, um, they're just little bits of truffles kind of studded throughout, and I feel like truffles, you know, in anything kind of tend to excite <laughs> excite people, so. Well, that was kind of just cool to say, because Soto Cenere means under ashes, and in the Veneto region, one of the ways that they would actually preserve cheese was by covering it in ashes so Sergio who was the inventor of this this item and who never believed in trademarking and now he wishes he had but um, he just took those cinnamon nutmeg clove cardamom fennel and licorice and used that as the ash Mm. which was really fun so it was I loved his inventiveness and that's the fun part of knowing our producers too is just seeing how creative they are to then allow us to be you know that much more inventive absolutely absolutely Um, I think actually, well, Sophie has a question and then I think um, it's about time for a break. So 
I was going to ask, and we can always get into this more over the uh, after the break, but in terms of the kind of education perspective, once you get the product in the country, what's the best way to educate your customers about how to sell it or your yeah or people who are coming to the stores the best way the best way to tell them the backstory of these cheeses I don't know if there's a best way but I think that I always try and have on hand if my customers ask as much of a story a history a spec sheet a sell sheet a little 3 by 5 card sign a just a really detailed brochure or even the website is whatever people want I always say that I try not to be cookie cutter but, you know, just to have you have an open dialogue with your customers, with shops or whatever. And a lot of times, though, we work with distributors for the most part who then sell to stores. So we don't know everyone, but we welcome people to call and to ask us questions. And if we can help them in any way, produce that information or give them much more, then that's why I try and I travel a lot to know the whole story. So that always so that I'll be ready for whatever questions that come and that hopefully I convey all of that to the salespeople that we have so that we can be the best resource possible for for our customers. Cool. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I mean, just hearing the the story about this uh, cow's milk cheese from uh, that we were just mentioning. You know, I think it's great to kind of have that. Customers love love that stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, it looks like we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Michelle Buster of Forever Cheese to talk about her amazing selection and career. Stay with us. This is Sam Edwards from Virginia with SurreyFarms.com, proud sponsors of the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Dan Saxelby. Today, we are talking with Michelle Buster, one of the founders of Forever Cheese, um, and also of Mitika, which is um, a really wonderful line of products from the Mediterranean. Um, mostly cheeses, but also um, some other wonderful things, Marcona almonds, fig cakes that we were talking about before. Um, and so... We were talking a little bit in the first segment about how when you make something popular, um, then all of a sudden, you know, you've done all this work that is love, and then you end up doing some work that's not so lovely, which is kind of having to, you know, make sure you dig in and kind of protect your your product. Um, have you seen that happen? You said it happened with the Sotto Chenri. Have you seen it happen kind of over and over again with your... The two biggest ones are the Drunken Goat and Sotto Chenri. But there's others, and, you know, sometimes, I mean, we all learn as we go so there's sometimes where perhaps I thought up of a name and then I had to change it as well or there's um, actually there was an overseas company who kept trying to use Mitika and insistently and 
so then we'd have to protect it. Or instead of just protecting something here in the States, I have to think about protecting it in Europe or in Canada because our products were sold in Canada too. So, um, but principally it was just those two are the big ones. Wow. Wow. Very, very interesting. Um, well, talking about, you know, popularizing cheeses, I feel like, you know, um, the ones that you've mentioned, um, certainly anyone who I feel like who lives in New York and loves cheese has, has had the opportunity to try them. Um, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, the Manchego boom. I feel like you said, you know, after Italy, your first goal was to find a really truly superb manchego and that's a cheese that i feel like has just gone crazy in the united states over the last couple of years can you talk a little bit about that well it's actually it's a big it's a big deal and it, it's a kind of a confusing thing the thing is is manchego is a dop sheep's milk cheese that can be produced only in la mancha from manchega sheep's milk and there's the five different there's like toledo albacete ciudad real um cuenca and that's it thing is, is you need to have the seal, that little sticker with the two cheeses with the number on it that shows it's DOP Manchego. Once you pre-cut that cheese, it becomes really difficult to know if it's Manchego or not. So we don't always know with the craze and what's happening, it's also creating that perhaps some things that are coming here is not necessarily Manchego, but it's sheep's milk cheese. Because in Spain, um, that was always the most popular cheese. And the type of mold that was used came from the asparto grass that grew on the plains. And so it created that zigzag rind. So there's tons of sheep cheeses that have that zigzag rind. There's tons of mixed milk cheeses that have that zigzag rind. There's goat cheeses that have it. So and one of the things that with the popularity of Manchego, with this really kind of flavorful cheese that isn't so different from the cheeses that Americans grew up with, I think that, I think that that's why it's becoming so much more popular in mainstream um, U.S. Besides my thought that you know the Latin population that keeps increasing, which always loved that cheese for flavor, um, is just knowing is everything that's coming in really Manchego that's being called it, mm. because just in Spain alone you have Manchego semi curado, which is like a three month cheese curado, which is like five or six months. You can have viejo, which is like six to eight months, or actually up to ten. Then you have añejo, which is one year, or you have reserva. So you have all these different levels of manchego. You have hundreds of different producers. And then you have all these other cheeses that look like they could be manchego, but unless you actually know or deal with somebody, it's hard to tell. Hmm. Uh, it's like cheese police again. I, I remember um, talking with Nancy... Um, Nancy Radke, who does the Parmigiano Reggiano yes. Consortio, and um, I, I remember one time she, when I was working at Murray, she came in and and um, I w- we were scolded because we had Grana Padano rinds in the basket with the Parmesan rinds to sell, you know, for soup and whatever. And she was like, you know, you can't, you absolutely can't do that. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> but so yeah, that's very funny. It's 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 important, you know, that there are organizations out there. Is there something similar for Manchego to to the Consortio that kind of protects that uh, Consejo Regulador? De quesos manchego. And I mean, there are other regions. Pre- pretty much what happened is, is, I mean, when I was a student, it took me two weeks to figure out which manchego I liked because there was like a table, like a 20-foot table in the market with uh, manchego cheeses that had all different colored rinds from all different ages. So I finally, you know, figured it out. But then uh, they created a denomination of origin which said manchego can't be mixed milk anymore. It's just sheep. So that already changed at once. And so the Consejo, and then 
an interesting thing is in this country, we have young manchego that has like a black rind on it or a dark brown. Actually, the consejo, they don't, and that you never see in Spain. Young cheese has no color on the rind, and the color of the rind actually denotes the aging of the cheese. So the darker the color, the more aged the cheese. Sure. But when I first got into it, and like I said, it was kind of like my pact with uh, Pierluigi, you know, we sell your Italian cheeses, and then let me go find my manchego. Um, the market for the pricier cheese had to be that dark rind, because that had been established before we ever got into it. Hmm. But it has. It's like you said. It is a frenzy. It's grown. It for those of us who like, you know, fought tooth and nail and demoed every weekend to talk about sheep's milk cheese, and people would just wrinkle up their nose, scared of it, and to now have it be so easy when you say manchego, people's light, eyes light up. The Italians were here years before with pecorino, which is the Italian word for sheep. Uh, well, uh, the adjective for sheep. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty funny how manchego could make that jump. And not necessarily all the Italian cheeses. Yeah, yeah, no, it just it it's it's amazing how popular that cheese is. It's really really wild. So, well, what about other what about other trends in the in the business that you see? I mean, you've been doing this for you said eighteen years now, um, and so I mean, you've seen incredible amounts of you know things change, including including American cheese appreciation. Because I feel like now more than ever, Americans know their cheeses. Um, so, what do you feel like people are you know really looking for the um, sort of new things that you're excited about. Well, that's it. The The funny thing is, is I never looked to see what people were asking for. It was about us finding things that we were just so passionate about and then creating that want here. Absolutely. So, I mean... I even, guess I, I should have rephrased the, <laughs> rephrased no, the question. No, but honestly, it's, it's just, you know, we never had, like, we want to grow to be this or we want to do that. We're just like, we had goal one sell, you know, Pierluigi's family's cheese. Goal two, Michelle needs to get back to Spain, so let's go find Manchego. Oops, look at all these other great things I find. So in cheese, some of the things I'm looking for are some fresher cheeses, younger cheeses that I feel will round out the market because it's so much easier to bring more aged cheeses. Mm. So we've been exceptionally excited about Nuvola di Pecora, which is like a square-shaped, soft-ripened sheep cheese that we brought from Romagna, and it's just like eating, it means uh, clouds, so clouds of sheep, and it just tastes like that to me, and uh, so that's actually, I named that. Um, So I think that, I'm looking for other younger, fresher cheeses from smaller, unknown regions in Spain. Uh, The thing is, is that it's just hard to, I bring everything by boat except for from Portugal, so I have to see the things that I'll live. Mm-hmm. And if it's not going to live, I don't care how unusual it is, you know, I I won't be able to bring it. Because for me, or for us, I should say, we represent the cheesemaker. It's very important that we bring the, the product the way they want it, not the way somebody's perception here thinks of it as. And that's also very key. So I think younger and fresher cheeses, then I did something with the Marconas, which was to make Marcona almond butter, which is not something that's typical in Spain. But I thought that since the Marconas were so ingrained and people love them so much that people would and almond butter is healthy for you and people like almond butter so we're trying to create the market with that with and and teaching the Spaniards too they're like hey I never thought of this <laughs> so we actually you know explained to our almond guy how to make it that's uh, awesome I love it bringing bringing a little you know American uh, <laughs> a wonderful nostalgic kitschy food influence back to Spain that's great 
And I'm hoping that, you know, with the Croatian cheese, the Pashkisir, I'm hoping that because Croatia is such a, an amazing country with a lot of the same wonderful ingredients that the rest of the Mediterranean has, that, you know, that will um, really you know, take steam. I'm not saying I'm going to do like 10 Croatian cheeses or anything like that, but this island of Pag had this really cool cheese. And guess what? It's sheep again, like everything else. So, um, <laughs> Is that your power animal, would you say? The it's sheep? definitely my favorite as when it comes to <laughs> cheese. I think that it's just, there's so many nuances. And that's been exciting to see in the States, mm. is like you said, the growth of the artists and the growth of the American market and see how far they've come with making sheep's milk cheeses too. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really impressive. Just in the last 10 years, it seems like, you know, the, that snowball has started rolling down the hill in a, in a fast way. <laughs> um, well, so what uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but we'll just take a minute to talk about um, what are some of the I mean, you were talking about the, the FDA, um, you know, being an unfortunate side consequence of, uh, you know, being an importer. Um, how has that changed um, that landscape changed for you since you started the business? Um, well, they've made a more. They've decided to de- denote much more money to checking imported products. I'm not sure what they do for the American products. I'm not sure that there's as much crackdown and, and scrutiny on it. It wouldn't be nice to think that it is treated no, equally. Raw milk cheesemakers. That last year, that was their the banner that they chose to wave, and so all of our small producers too kind of got you know. Um, you know, uh, very scrutinized, let's say. Yeah. Well, it just is. It's just, we get, you know, a lot of things stopped, a lot of things looked at, not just for analyzing the cheese, but, uh, there are challenges, you know, everything on the labeling and the nutrition's have to be fine. Some, not all of it we completely agree with because if there's a labeling issue that can be fixed, why hold up product that, that could then go bad? And, you know, we're all here to, to be in business so my distributors and my stores depend on us the producers depend on us and they've had increased problems in Europe too which have nothing to do with our government but there were some crazy laws that just you know um, impeded them to be able to sell and it's so important now it's so everywhere in, in Europe that I work with is so depressed Italy and Spain you know the economy and here just trying to make the people that we deal with have to say, hey, this is cheese. You can't hold on to it for that long. Analyze it and get it out if you're going to analyze it or please don't hold it because, you know, we can't. We can't. We just don't have the funds to absorb all of that if it, if it goes bad or then if you have back-to-back shipments of gorgonzola that all of a sudden you have nothing for weeks and then you've got 500 cases or whatever it is right. that you have to sell in the blink of an eye. Right. So that's the funny thing about the FDA. They don't seem to understand much about food. <laughs> or at least, well, you know, the, the, the measuring and the testing and the swabbing and stuff, you know, that's, that's their, you know, sort of area. But knowing about the sensitivity of a product like cheese, you know, that doesn't seem to be their top priority. So I think that they have more people now, which make it a little bit easier, and they're starting they're starting to change. So that if they stop something in like what you call stripping a container, so you take forty thousand pounds and you unload every single case that they might want to look at, and if they're going to do that, they're adding a few more people on, so at least it doesn't take as long. Mm. But the whole thought of it is just very scary because then when you put it back together if you don't know the product you could squash it you can damage it and that's all we have to pay for all that we have to pay for all of their time for all of their doing for all of the damage 
um, regular stuff, if you just analyze it and it goes to the lab and it comes back, you're allowed to bill them. But it's still, well, we decided we were going to be an importer, so that's part of what we have to do. Yeah. But it just today, it's just like five times as more as challenging. To put it, to spin it in the best way I know how to yeah. spin. <laughs> now you're very diplomatic on your show with Katie. We had Steve, you know, ranting and raving on the one side, and then you were like, "Well, you know, you have to explain to them if you get them on the phone, you know," um, which is, as a businesswoman, a very valuable skill. That's uh. <laughs> Um, well, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. But um, if people want to learn more about Forever Cheese and about the products that you sell, um, can you tell us, do you have a website? Um, ForeverCheese.com. So just like it sounds. Just like it sounds. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come out and explain um, this wonderful business. And thank you for your you know, years of work bringing delicious cheeses to America. We all owe you big time. Thank you so much again for having me. It's been really fun. All right, well, we'll be back next Monday with a brand new episode of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.